0: Welcome to Swounder's Day with Kevin Clark. I am Kevin Clark. Yeah. We're doing a new recording setup, so it took Richie a half beat longer to say, yeah, than normal. Hey, Richie? That's right. <laughs> All right. Um, so here's the deal. This is really the first off-season snd on the feed we started right before the season so it's been football 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 we're going to continue that theme today um but we're just going to fill this this feed up with just stuff i'm generally curious about um Lindsay will be on a bunch she is traveling abroad as we talked about last week um so she'll be gone for a few episodes so what we do have is patrick doherty who works for Roto World. You know him as Roto Pat. He ranked the top coaches in the NFL. We just go through that. We have a discussion on just what makes a good coach in 2023. Really, really enjoyed this one. And then Ben Fisher from Sports Business Journal joins uh, to talk about the Snyder ownership change, the state of play in modern NFL ownership, how the, the how the prices are affecting everything, what kind of owner Josh Harris would be I learned a lot from this. And he actually floated some teams that uh, might be for sale. Eyeball emoji. Um, and it was, listen, it was speculation, but I just think that there's um, there's some some meat behind it. So great discussions with Pat and Ben. Let's get to it. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Joined now by Patrick Darty from Roto World. What's going on, brother? Roto, Pat.
3: (laughs) I'm doing well. Uh, My local nine, uh, the Zoomers call that a baseball team. Uh, We're up to 17 and 25, the St. Louis Cardinals. So things are looking really up for me right now.
0: So I've been watching more baseball now as a dad with a couch. And uh, I used to love baseball. It's my favorite thing in the world when I was in high school. Coincidentally, when I had more time. Um, I just kind of sit around watching extra innings, you know, and also I hated going to school. So the the, like the idea of games happening in the day and then also games happening to like one in the morning and you're just watching Eric (laughs) Gagne close it out at Dodger (laughs) Stadium like that, 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 uh, that appealed to me. And now I'm back and I used to be like really into analytics. All I want to do with baseball Pat is just be a dumbass fan, like all this stuff like I haven't watched in about a decade, and i have, I mean like I watch the big games, but like i'm I, like I don't want to know anything about launch angle, I don't want to know any of these things. I just want to be a dumbass and talk about clutch hitting like i am actually i want to regress from where I was a decade ago
3: So you don't want to know how the dingers are made, and yeah, clutch hitting was like totally dead because of the shift because like a clutch hit used to be you just rip a single up the middle. But like like during the low point of the shift years, like that hit just didn't exist anymore. Colton Wong was always just standing right behind second base, and like so like the satisfying up the middle hit was just gone. It's like you know the kind of guys who didn't have power, like someone like Daniel Descalso. That's what he would do. You'd hit it up the middle. That's how they became known as like clutch. So they had no power, but they're always hitting well timed hits up the middle, and that was just dead with the shift. But now we're hoping it's coming back. So. You want to be a meathead baseball fan. I think you're getting back on the train.
0: I, I am so excited to be a meathead baseball fan. And when my kid is of age, I'll teach him about clutch hitting and how teams win in the playoffs because they want it more. And how the game changes, all that stuff in the playoffs. October is just different.
3: You know, with baseball, by the way, we're super into trivia. I was meaning to ask you about fatherhood. I'll ask you a trivia question. How many kids okay. do I have? I believe it's four, right? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you know I was just We I, talked I was, about this months yeah, ago because you had right. your fourth when I had my first. That's right. I I've started to tell people my go-to line. My go-to line is it's like Taysom Hill's age, whatever your guess is, pump it up two or three. And that's wow. how many I have. This happens when you like baseball. You just have four kids all of a sudden. <laughs> sure, it's way
0: people too much. Just, you're assigned time. more kids where the, the baseball Rob Manfred's like, this guy loves this guy loves baseball. <laughs> just saddle him with more kids. He's got time. Um so, all right we're we're doing our top coaches. Um, and we're not really going to do a list. Um you you have a list and I want to go through it and I want to argue with you or talk about it conceptually about about what this what this is. Um I do find it funny. Let's start with your worst coaches. Josh <laughs> McDaniel's among the non new coaches is dead last. He's 27th. I think Josh McDaniel's is not a particularly good coach. I've never and 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 these exercises are great, Pat, because sometimes I'm just like, well, Josh Daniels is the worst coach in football. And then you look at it and it's like, wait, maybe he is like who who's worse, you know, like and I think sometimes we get into like the, you know, and, and every once in a while, there's kind of a punching bag like Gus Bradley, who's always going to be perennially at the bottom of his list. Yes. I think owners, I love the, the phrase Cooper Patagno used about recruiting a couple weeks ago, and I'm using it all over in, in life, which is. I think that teams are missing smarter now in a lot of ways. And, and so there's not going to be like a Gus Bradley who's getting unlimited patience in some of these things or, or Matt Rule where it's just not going to work and they're just like, whatever, we, we owe him $40 million. So we might as well keep him two extra years. So I do think there's an element of like these, that, that the worst, I know I'm going to say something incredibly stupid here. I think the worst coaches now are better than the worst coaches a decade ago
3: zero doubt and missing smarter is like a really, really good way to put it because I think the best way to make your head coaching hire, I think you should always begin with someone who's an offensive play caller. You should make exceptions of course, because there are true defensive geniuses out there. There's been some true defensive geniuses that's hired in the past five or six years, but you know the hottest commodity, the most difficult commodity to find is a good play caller. And so even when you're a good a coach who's not an offensive play caller you're always in danger of losing your play caller so i think like the platonic ideal is you hire an offensive play caller as head coach since sean McVay was hired 27 of 42 hires have been from the offensive side of the ball 17 percent alone have been from either the mcveigh or kyle shanahan tree and as we know <laughs> it's skewing i know it's crazy and we know it's skewing way younger and not that there's not that us young people are any smarter but teams are taking much bigger swings. They're much risky. It used, Mike McDaniel would have been like the riskiest hire in the history of professional sports 10 years ago. And now yes. people are kind of like, wow, that, that's kind of interesting. But like no one it's really even weird, bats an eye. tonight. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just a I little weird. I will say that now. young
0: people, young people are smarter now that I believe in clutch hitting again. Um,
3: <laughs> why is Josh Daniels your worst ranked uh, coach? First, I just what didn't seem like he learned anything from his Broncos (laughs) go around, and like I think his worst trait, and maybe I'm just projecting this onto him. It seems I wrote something like this in the article. It seems like he resents anyone who had the audacity to like be successful before he got there. And as we know, the first thing he did as Broncos head coach was come in and basically punch like Jay Cutler in the mouth, you know, and like send him packing, like send all the old program packing. And he didn't do it to quite that degree in Las Vegas. But, you know, by the end of the year, he's already scapegoating Derek Carr. And believe me, I have piled on Derek Carr for quite a long time. For some reason, I'm blocked by his entire family on Twitter, even though I've, like, never tweeted at them or anything like that. Like, Derek Carr is not going to be, like, the long-term solution for a franchise. But I didn't think he was the Raiders' problem last year. And I couldn't help but notice that John Gruden, of all people, like, maxed out Derek Carr's efficiency and the efficiency went way down under Josh McDaniels. And it it just seemed like, again, he was repeating the old habits of thinking thinking like nothing could be his fault, Like he's got to make big moves, like bring in like his guys, and he brings in like his college roommate as his GM. He goes out, (laughs) and the only thing he did was like a first-year executive, basically, was trade for Devontae Adams. They didn't make like any draft picks or anything like that. And then, you know, then he – it sends away Darren Waller over seemingly like a very minor personal. Sl- I just, and, and I'm too, I've been biased against Josh McDaniels for a long time. Cause I always <laughs> thought he was overrated in New England. Yeah. I suffered through his one year as offensive coordinator in St. Louis where I thought it's like, man, this guy is nothing away from Belichick. And yep. I just think he is like the least introspective coach in the NFL right now.
0: Interesting. What's interesting is you mentioned Derek Carr. Derek Carr has moved on and you have Dennis Allen above Josh McDaniels. I do. <laughs> I I I One's think five. there there's kind of a 1A 1B situation here yes. or 30, 30, 31A 31B situation here as as it uh, as it were. But I hate to jot Dennis Allen's tenure in Oakland of which there wasn't much to work with, but it was just, they did, there was just no high watermark. There just wasn't anything. It was just, that. that, that's always when I, did you do any, like you, sometimes I'll see a bad coach and I'll say, did you do anything with it? Did you do any, did you make a player better than he should have been? Whatever. And I just, when I was watching Dennis Allen, I was like, this just isn't, isn't working. The saints last year, it didn't, it didn't impress me very much. Any hopes for, for Dennis Allen, with Derek Carr this year?
3: I'll say with Dennis Allen, the one thing he does do is he clears the lowest bar where If you're you've got to take care of your side of the ball. Like that's like just the bare minimum for what you have to do as a head coach. And Dennis Allen is a good defensive coordinator. The Saints defense was perfectly fine last year too. So he does like clear that bare minimum, but he's just so conservative. And when you're not working with with a whole lot on offense, like he wasn't in in Oakland the first go round. He wasn't last year with Andy Dalton. And now you have Derek Carr who who is an upgrade, but a very nominal upgrade. You've got to be a lot more aggressive. You've got to be like ruthless about finding and exploiting edges and just nothing whatsoever in his head coaching tenure suggests like he's gonna get aggressive and like basically make his own luck on offense. And that's why I've got him ranked down and basically in the will get fired zone. Um, <laughs> but it, to, to your point with Dennis Allen, he won forty-one percent of his games last year, and that was a career high for Dennis Allen.
1: Uh
3: mm. doesn't seem to be the best head coach. Mm. All right, I want to
0: go through a three coach stretch here that I find fascinating because I, I think that they're correctly ranked, but they just seem like they shouldn't be next to each other. Twenty is Brandon Staley. Twenty-one is Mike McCarthy. Twenty-two is Arthur Smith. I there's, there's a whole a whole range here. Um, I the Arthur Smith blurb starts out with Arthur Smith fake sharp uh and i
3: <laughs> i don't say i agree with that i said it's an article of faith on analytics twitter let's start with arthur smith like i i keep seeing i keep seeing arthur
0: smith's system as sort of this abstract thing oh we need this guy for arthur smith's system whatever and i'm yet to see and also like i saw i saw ben Volen tweeted this the other day god bless him but he was like man i think they're gonna regret not putting any Falcons games on prime Cause if Ritter is at all good. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. No, uh, what? They did us a solid
3: there by not doing
0: They much. did us a solid. I just don't, I feel like we're, t- I, we as a punditry are trying to move the Falcons along to a place that not even they think they're at.
3: It's Arthur Smith is like a weird conceptual, like phenomenon. Like you were getting at where I do actually think he brings something uh, the Falcons were one of only five teams in the entire league to generate positive rushing EPA last year. Like, he can really design a rushing attack. And you know, that was with, like, an offensive line that's not amazing with a quarterback that wasn't taking any pressure off the running game. So he can create a rushing attack. So then if you can do that with, like, a day three rookie in Tyler Algier, like a journeyman slasher in Cordell or Patterson, why would you use the number eight overall pick on Robinson, John Robinson, who is amazing, but like you can, he's like Kyle kind of Shanahan, where he can create a run game. I was gonna say he's like, the, or or a quarterback, where it's like he's like the it's like the Trey Lance pick for running backs, yeah. where it's like you
0: can create this out of nothing, and now you're spending capital on it.
3: Exactly. So he's like, I feel like he's so he's really good at that. But then it's like he he wants to trap himself in like the Ryan Tannehill box. Basically, he doesn't want to transcend the way he's had success. Like he made Ryan Tannehill a thing again. That's pretty huge accomplishment. What a miserable phrase, the Ryan Tannehill box. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I feel like he has the power to transcend it, but he doesn't want to. And so like, it's really good that he can design these good rushing attacks, but it's really, really bad that he doesn't want to think bigger.
0: Did you think about dinging Mike McCarthy even more? He's not even in the top 20 for saying that, that, Kellen Moore got fired because he was trying to
3: score points too many points. And I mean, I put some of the, uh, infamous quotes in here. He called the 19 to 12 divisional round game for 49ers, a shootout. He literally said it was, he didn't like getting into shootouts. So they got into a shootout with the 49ers. And like this one line is like a chat GPT line. Like I would put it in chat GPT. Like what is something like a really, really like retrograde coach would say. And it'd be that I don't want the number one offense. I want the number one team. And so Mike McCarthy's weird though, because he says and does all these extremely dumb things, but then they are coming. He is coming in. He's winning 12 games again, like two years in a row. And like the actions like aren't matching the words at all. Like clearly I'm, I'm not believing in Mike McCarthy ranking. He was the 21st coach, but the reason he's 21 and like not 27 where McDaniels is, is because I guess I can't totally ignore that. They're winning 12 games, despite the extremely dumb things he's saying.
0: I'm no Kellen Moore evangelist. I just don't think that
3: that's the
0: problem. And I don't think Brian Schottenheimer is a solution.
3: No, no. That's all. <laughs> and I don't think Mike McCarthy. So, yeah, I, mean, I guess Mike McCarthy's calling these plays. And yes. all I remember about the end days of Mike McCarthy and Green Bay were Packers fans basically saying, like, I will stop watching sports if Mike McCarthy <laughs> calls another slant. And then he did. And now they're all off Twitter. They've all stopped watching sports. They're in finance and banking now, thanks to Mike McCarthy f1 they're, F- they're f1 F one fans. fans now
0: where's brandon staley at at this point he's 19 and 15 he's 14th last year he's now 20th he had a i would say career defining loss in the playoffs yeah. last year um what wh- what do we do with a problem like brandon staley
3: i don't know because it's weird because he's had so many vivid failures of it's like denny carter and i always joke like sure would be great if the analytics worked once because you know <laughs> we we both support the analytics I, and it is last year last year he gave a very nice i don't mean to
0: denigrate them he gave a very nice tribute to his his social team when they when they got nominated for a webby um and but i just clipped the phrase we got nominated for a webby from brandon staley and i send it to Solak and ruiz whenever they do something galaxy brain because it looks like staley is saying like he himself got nominated for a, a webby award um i he's become more meme than man at this point
3: he has so he, he it's so hard to separate back from fiction from it because he goes viral all the time for his analytics backfiring
0: but or, he does or, or just like remember the year where it was like he would just be like Lamar Jackson is special. And people would be like, this is so insightful from Brandon Staley, <laughs> the top mind in football. I, That to me was the backlash, in my opinion. It's like, we just, we just, we crowned him smartest man in football without any evidence of that. And so I actually think that in my, I was probably unfair to him for a while, just as again, as the more mean, mean than man.
3: Yeah. Anyone who says analytics, we grade on a curve, but he does grade out fairly well in most like the decision making metrics. And, like, the EPA metrics, like, some of the play sequencing metrics, Lenny's done a horrible job on his side of the ball, where, like, the Chargers defense is kind of loaded with talent. I mean, at least on paper, they've had injury issues, as they've been known to do in the Chargers organization. But he hasn't at all been, like, the boy genius defensive coordinator he was with Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey with the Rams. Like, to me, that's, like, the like the rear guard threat to him. So maybe the analytics stuff pans out, especially now they've gotten rid of Joe Lombardi, they might actually cut – Justin Herbert loose with Kellen Moore. He's not taking care of his business on his side of the ball, and that that is just the quickest path to failure as the head coach. If you don't clear that bar, like you handle your side of the ball, you will be getting fired.
0: Agree. Um, I'm intrigued to see where it goes, and and I will say very one thing: it's not about football. Maybe this: the Chargers have a great social team, and they do all these like digs in other franchises. Slightly surprised that nobody is, let's call it, dug back at the Chargers, yeah. where there's a lot to dig. If I'm the Lions and they're making fun of our our little gambling ring, I've got a lot to bring up about the Los Angeles Chargers.
3: Just at least saying. the Chargers don't play in a soccer stadium anymore, uh, so that's good. And you well, wait you say you don't comp- know. Comes around. You, you said you don't. Yeah, true. Good point. You don't know where the Brandon Staley era is going. I think we can safely say it will get funnier. That's all we know. I, more webbies.
0: more webbies in the future. Um, hey, his,
3: his backdrop on his videos is just gonna be like a shelf full of Webies, and people like <laughs> people said I failed as Chargers head coach. What do you say about this,
1: huh?
3: Hey, um, there's another three three
0: coach thing I want to get to here. So Stefanski, McDaniel, Robert Sala,
3: Robert Sala, good coach. I don't know. This is like the needs more information zone <laughs> and. Salah was weird because they were going somewhere last year. And then Zach Wilson just made it impossible to evaluate the entire situation. And they didn't score a touchdown in any of their final three games. Uh, Very, very, very bad. But I feel like he has the leadership covered and, you know, Joe Douglas is supplying these players. Yes. But the jets allowed 188 fewer points last year on defense. So where I thought Salah, Salah was hired for defense and leadership because he's not an offensive guy. He was hired for those two things. I thought those were there last year and, but it's not, so it's not like I pumped him into the top 10 though. I need more information, but I've put him, this is firmly in the needs more information zone for Robert Sala. Okay. Um,
0: McDaniel, I think has showed proof of concept there. Um, this is classic needs more information, which give him another year. Stefanski is in this weird zone. He's been the coach since 2020 he worked a miracle one year, winning a playoff game and making it seem normal. And obviously, they're extenuating circumstances. And then they trade for Deshaun Watson, which I thought people were just going to hold their nose, but it was going to work. And it turns out uh, it was a complete disaster. Complete. And this is really on like Stefanski's job is, first of all, Browns fans, a lot of them, maybe it's just small sample sizes of the people I follow. Feels like Browns fans hate Kevin Stefanski for some reason. Um, and maybe I, maybe they blame him for some of the failures, but then I, I I find him thoughtful in our our interactions. I don't, I didn't, to be quite frankly, Frank, I didn't parse the failures last year to a degree where I can say this was Stefanski. This was Andrew Barry. This was Deshaun Watson. It just gets all jumbled. And and I just sort of say every, everybody was bad. Um, but I kind of feel like they can't get out of the Sean contract. Andrew Barry has shown that he's a pretty smart dude. Um if this bottoms out kind of feel like Stefanski's, Stefanski's staring down the barrel here, pal.
3: Yeah, he he's going to be the fall guy. And if it bottomed out, he could be a mid-season fall guy in 2023 and I agree with you. I think Kevin Stefanski is really sharp and sure like he's coasting on this one miracle still, but it was a large miracle, a very large larger than a normal miracle <laughs> uh what he did in 2020. But it was very concerning what happened last year. He was tasked with a really difficult challenge: changing the offense on the fly when Deshaun Watson comes back. So Jacoby Brissett, you're playing very conservative. You're playing very station to station. That's just what Jacoby Brissett is, and that's also what Stefanski's offense had been. Of course, Deshaun Watson, we know, is an elite passer and plays like a high-flying style of offense. And it's hard to like chain like flip the switch mid-season with those styles. But they just comprehensively did not do it. And it seemed like he had no idea how to use the Deshaun Watson. They averaged fewer points with Deshaun Watson than Jacoby Brissett last year. Something that should not be possible. And, and it was a large challenge, maybe an unrealistic one, uh, but one he failed uh, very comprehensively uh, making that switch.
0: I just want to say this. I just, I was looking on Twitter to find something else for a discussion. And um, I saw this. Is there any discussion in sports history that seems more disconnected from the update before it and the update after it, than the the Arizona Coyotes arena development. <laughs> because <laughs> I just playing. saw there's a vote. I just saw there's a vote. And it just seems like every time I see an update on it, it has nothing, it is the complete opposite of what I just previously saw about it. And it's like, it's like, oh, they're locked out of their arena. Oh, they've signed a two-year agreement to play at Arizona State. Oh, there's a vote today. And now it's like it is, it is uh man. That's one of those things where if it was any other sport, we'd probably make fun of it a lot oh, yeah. more.
3: No, truly. It's, it, all I know is anytime I see an update, it's like, wow, they're playing in an even smaller arena now. <laughs> and they're playing in the Chargers they soccer just, stadium they just, now.
0: They just removed 500 seats for no reason. They just said, ah, we're good. <laughs> like, we're good.
3: Like, uh, well, um, I didn't know you could play outdoors in Arizona, but okay.
0: Okay, I'm going to get mad at you. Uh, yeah. Zach Taylor, 12th. Yeah,
3: I mean, I know. That's, uh, that's kind of disrespectful, isn't it?
1: Uh, Or or is it too high? It's
3: your list. I mean, all right, here's the deal. It's they win.
0: He's the play caller. Uh, If it was easy, everybody would do it. Uh, That's an organization that's really hard to win in. I always overrated Marvin Lewis because the Bengals. however cheap you think the Bengals are, the cheaper. And so some of these updates on the NFLPA stuff is kind of shining a light on that. Um, I think that what Zach Taylor has done has been pretty good and and I really don't think like yes Joe Burrow is a culture changer but part of this and this is something I've said a million times in order to maximize a culture changer like Joe Burrow you have to let him change your culture and there are people like who are who are worse coaches who would have said no 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 no, Joe I'm, I'm driving the bus here
3: say like Urban Meyer did at Ohio State and chased or, him away uh Jack, yeah exactly yeah, no no i'm saying where he chased Joe Burrow say, away Ohio state. Say, what if he got drafted by the jaguars yeah. oh my gosh so with i think honestly zach taylor at 12 it does sound too low i think it plays into the missing smarter concept where i think the state of coaching is just really really good right now and i started doing this exercise i believe in 2014 and it used to be half the list like well this guy's getting fired next year like this without a doubt Like after like eight or nine, I I used to
0: call them pre, I used to call them pre-fired. Exactly. Like after eight or nine,
3: what is this? There weren't any good coaches left. Whereas now it's just a really, really, it's Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, McVay, uh, Harbaugh, Tomlin, like even Pete Carroll. Like, so it seems low for Zach Taylor, but it's just partly a product of the coaching product being, being very, very strong right now. And Zach Taylor used letting Joe Burrow change the culture He's just a guy who understands the mission where he, he got out of Joe Burrow's way. He's getting out of Lou Anarumo's way on defense. Another See huge real. part of being a head coach is just knowing who to trust. He trusts his defensive coordinator. He trusts like his team leader. He does his part by calling the plays. I agree that he's actually becoming quite a success where he was someone who was like pilloried by the fantasy community, especially his first few years on the job.
0: Um, Mike Frable at nine ahead of oh. Doug Peterson and Pete Carroll.
3: I mean, he's what, he's been on the job five years. He's been a number one seed. He's beat Bill Belichick in the playoffs. He's made an AFC championship game and he's done all this. I would say basically without players, like they just haven't had a very good roster situation. We saw come to a head where he basically won a power struggle against John Robinson. And I think they've just been a classic. The whole has been greater than the sum of its parts. And he's been dealing with like a shorthanded deck just a little too long. And, that, that will catch up with you. It caught up with them last year where they were seven and three and didn't make the playoffs. But I think he's like Harbaugh. I think he's like Belichick where he's always finding edges. He's always adapting. He's always changing and right. he just needs better players. He just needs better players. But there's a lot of that going around. There is. There's, we need um, more good players.
0: Speaking of, can I yell at you for a second? I find it totally wrong that, and I really like Nick Sirianni, but I find Nick Sirianni above Rabel Peterson, Carol, whatever, uh, Zach Taylor at 12. Like there are, I, Nick Sirianni was handed the deepest and best roster in football. Um, Howie Roseman is the best GM in football. I think it's hard, and I think they're all bunched together. And so it's, it's almost a distinction without difference. And I'm not going to say that Sirianni should be in the Mike McCarthy, Brandon Staley zone. I would never say that. But what I am saying is, is that I just say, are you maximizing? what it is. And Vrabel is a good example of that. And Nick Sirianni maximized a roster that I think, I I think a lot about like how, how many, how many coaches could have done that. And Nick Sirianni had a great regular season last year. You you, you play the teams on your schedule, whatever. And then in the playoffs, he beat a bunch of teams he should have beaten. Again, I'm hugely impressed with what they, what they've done. If it was easy, everybody would have done it, all that stuff. Um, But I just, I'm not ready to say he's the eighth best coach in football. Well,
3: it's funny when you say how many coaches could have done that. I'd say more than it used to be because the coaches have gotten a lot smarter. But even now, think of how many coaches would have come into this situation in Philadelphia and just been like, I don't know what to do with Jalen Hurts. Like, I just can't do it. I'm sorry, Howie. I can't do it. Like, he got dealt this amazing. We're going to sign. We're going to
0: bring back Nick Foles.
3: We're bringing in Jarrett Stidham. Uh, Andy Dalton. Yeah, it's Stidham season now in Philadelphia, and he was dealt an amazing hand, but he knew what to do with it, and he's he's proven so adaptable. He, he basically midway through his first season in 2021, just changed the offense completely on the fly, where they were passing too much for the personnel they had in 2021. Midseason, after that humiliation, I, I believe against the Bucks on Monday Night Football, he's like, "We're becoming the most run-heavy team in football." And then they made the playoffs, and then last year though he fl- he switches the flip. Switches the flips the switch back. They get AJ Brown. They have much better passing game personnel. It's not like they became like Mr. Passing team last year, but way more than the year before. And so he's been dealt really great hands, but he I think has done an amazing job of maximizing what he's been dealt. And this just kind of too like the ideal of what a modern coach should be. He's EPA focused. Um he's forward thing. He's he actually it's not just lip service to analytics, like it's real analytics with him, and all from the guy. It really, he's like just a guy, as we know. There's no more just a guy coach the press can, He's like the most likely coach to have, like, like oh, wow, yeah, that guy was in, uh, like, on student council with me in high school. I didn't really think he was that smart. Uh, but here he is coaching the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, what do you know? I will
0: say this if you're asking me to rank who his childhood friends would say wasn't that smart, Nick sirani would not be number one for me.
3: No, no, it would and, not uh, be number one. It would not
0: be, he'd number, be number one.
3: You went to like three straight, three straight summers. You went to a Dave Matthews concert with them.
0: Oh, 100%. 100%.
3: Um, all right. So
0: interestingly enough, when I was, when I was thinking about being a dumbass baseball fan, I was thinking about how coaching is, there's a curve there. It's like the meme where it's like dumb, dumb person believes this smart person believes this. And then like mediocre person believes the opposite. Right. Yes. Coaches are just about wins and losses over the long period and all evens out and you get to see over a career what a, what a coach is. And there's usually very little doubt as long as they get a handful of seasons, as long as they get six, seven, eight seasons, you see enough where it's like, even with Belichick, we saw Cleveland, which you can if you want to throw out, you can, whatever we saw the, um, We saw the the 2008 season where they didn't have Brady um, with Matt Castle. We've seen now with Mac Jones and Cam Newton. So we're seeing this a little bit. Kyle Shanahan, to me, is someone who's done it with so many different quarterbacks and so many different systems and, and so little excuses. And listen, he's had nightmare seasons. But what he does reliably is he takes a quarterback and he gives them a yards per attempt that is historically good relative to the competition. We know what this is. And that's why I think, you know, you have him um, fifth, fifth. Um, he, he ahead could be of higher. Mike Tomlin, which I can argue. I can do I, I love Mike Tomlin. I think I he, do too, actually. Mike might, might deserve
3: to be higher. Disrespectful but, from it's
0: disrespectful
3: for Mike. Every ranking is disrespectful. Funny, That's one of the secrets of the rankings.
0: How to go at your own list.
3: That's like, um, the secret of the rankings is every single one of them is disrespectful. Do you
0: get... The same people I get, which is when you say something nice about Kyle Shanahan, people are like, oh, cool. Imagine if you won something. And it's like, (laughs) okay, there's a weird anti Shanahan Twitter thing out there. And I'm not really sure where it comes from. We know what he is. He's not the best coach in football, but there's nobody I'd rather have with my quarterback.
3: It's true. I, by the way, I really play into the anti Shanahan narrative because it's so he's just so irritating, like is really where that comes from, I think. And this is the example I use over and over again. Like, so people have heard me make the joke. before, like, wow, I really uh, needed to send Kyle Ustrich into motion again there, huh, Kyle? Uh, not <laughs> sure that, that was entirely necessary. And, you know, he punts at the wrong times. He settles for so many field goals. So he's extremely irritating is I think where that comes from. But I couldn't agree more with, with your analysis of Kyle Shanahan and someone who has just truly maxed out his scheme. And it's a really, really good scheme. And that's why I thought it was so interesting that he made the gambit for Trey Lance. Like the guy who's known as like Mr. Conservative kind of like made this huge, huge aggressive move up for Trey Lance. Cause I think he knew he had taken his system as far as it could go with scheme alone. And that was still almost beating the chiefs in a Super Bowl. So it can take you all the way, but I think he knew that he, he just needed to get over the top. He needed someone more than just Brock Purdy or Sam Darnold or Jimmy Garoppolo. And so he made this aggressive swing and then it just didn't work at all. So now it's really interesting to see him like back in the pretty Darnold zone and uh, (laughs) Darnold zone. Yeah. It's a strange place to be. Uh, I totally agree. Kyle Shannon is no one is maxing out their scheme in the NFL more than Kyle
0: Shannon. By the way, when I say nobody want more with a quarterback, I mean a bad quarterback. I mean, just yeah. like a quarterback <laughs> of off the streets. I don't yeah, yeah, mean yeah. like Andy Reid is the king of quarterbacks and I'm not going mean, to, I'm not going to get into that debate. As we saw, no,
3: They didn't <laughs> have a quarterback who could throw in the industry. I have faith in Kyle Shannon that if Kevin Clark, you'd been covering the game on the sidelines, like whatever, that we were allowed to put Clark in now uh, that he could have schemed some completions for you at the very least. I'm pretty
0: bad at throwing things. I do not have a very <laughs> strong arm. There, there are certain athletic things I am good at and and, and throwing is not one of them. Um, all right. Hardball four, McVay three, whatever. Andy Reid, nailed on number one. Um, this, is my, this is my number one question for you at the top here, and we do have to go um, and get to, get to another guest. But Bill Belichick, number two. How many seasons, and I, I think Bill Belichick is the best coach of all time, but we're talking about 2023 here. How many seasons of bleh will you see before you start knocking Bill Belichick down this list?
3: Well, this was the first year I didn't even have him number one. So even this is kind of, it begins, it has begun. It's kind of a surrender. It's just so funny because like what has been like a cataclysmic three years for bill Belichick, uh, one of those seasons, he made the playoffs with a rookie quarterback. then the following season when he has literally a defensive coordinator calling his plays, they're in the playoff hunt until week 18 and would have been in if they had just beaten the Miami dolphins and, I just seem like more than anything, I don't think his football acumen has dropped off at all. He's still, to me, if I had to win a game this Sunday, I am picking Bill Belichick. But he he just overconfident. Like he talk about, I've heard someone say before, Bill Belichick is in like the side quest era of his career <laughs> where he's beaten the main portion of the game. He's like, oh, I'm going to have a defensive coordinator call plays and offense. Like, because I'm Bill Belichick. And it's almost like he, even Bill Belichick needed to be humbled a little bit. The thing is that he was doing that stuff in 2008, 2009. Nobody noticed. And
0: now it's just, now people get mad at it. He's been doing weird stuff for a long time. He's been making weird draft picks for a long, when they were winning super bowls, he was, he benched Malcolm Butler for, because he didn't like the way he looked in practice. Like, or there's some weird thing that nobody's ever, even Malcolm Butler doesn't know about. So it is I, I, I agree it's going to be I don't think you can ever rank him outside the top five I just think no. he, if, if, if they don't make the playoffs in the next couple of years we can, we can start the slide
3: and he's just going to retire then so I'll, he's just going to bail me out I won't even have to face the, the Sophie's choice of Bill Belichick ranking that's right and then Gerard
0: Mayo will slide in and become your <laughs> there we go. 18th that's ranked right. guy after one year <laughs> Roto Pat we'll see you at Roto World and thanks for coming on so easy buddy my pleasure Kevin <laughs> All right. Ben Fisher, staff reporter at Sports Business Journal. He covers the NFL. He's one of the best people to follow, to read in sports business, especially in the football space. What's going on, brother?
1: Hey, man, just uh, living the dream. Lots of calls today. Happy to join you.
0: Lots of calls um, because there's been an ownership change, which doesn't happen that much. Um, I have a couple of questions about that before we we dig into Josh Harris, what the future of the Commanders is. And... Let's let's think about the template here of new ownership in the NFL. And the two most recent examples, Denver and then Carolina. I think the question on every single Commanders fan's mind is how quickly can they get the Snyder stench out? And that means firing a whole bunch of people, hiring a whole bunch of people. Getting rid of, if 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 Snyder had any cronies left, I don't know. Um, getting the uh, the recording devices out of the facility because I'm sure Snyder, you know, r- 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 installed some somewhere. Um, it's it's going to be a lot. There's going to be a new stadium, all of that stuff. But using the model of of the last two, and obviously David Depper's fired a hell of a lot of people. But timeline wise. How long does this take? Like Josh Harris gets the team control of the team when, when, and when is it, when are we actually going to see the start of whatever the Harris culture is?
1: you know, I, I wish I could give you a better answer, but I think if you look at the last few teams to change hands, it is a little bit hard to draw a direct line to it from a change in ownership to um, to a division championship or multiple playoff wins. I think it's safe to say that looking, I looked back even further to prepare for this conversation: Bills, Browns, Jags, Rams in the yeah. prior the prior generation. All of these teams are generally better than they were before those ownership transactions. But are they a little bit better? Are they winning Super Bowls? Did it take five years? Did it take two years? Did it take eight years? There's a lot of variability in those things. So if I were a Commanders fan, I would be very cautious about drawing a direct line from this development, as happy as we all are about it, to a championship at any given time frame. I think it's safe to say that in general, Washington will be a better run organization in a fairly short period of time. But exactly how that comes to bear, that depends on which draft pick you get.
0: Well, the honeymoon is so funny because not Dan Snyder is such a huge upgrade. So there's I, my opinion is going to be two waves of this. It's going to be not Dan Snyder operating like a, like a competent franchise. And then after three years of there's no winning, then, then the questions start. But I think that they're actually the grace period is going to be longer because it's going to be general competence, actual repairs to the stadium, um, not, not putting your logo on the side of the plane and, and, and charging your own team for it. Like I just think that there's just sort of uh, basics and nuts and bolts. You can literally, literally in some cases install in that franchise and 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 it will look better almost overnight
1: oh could not agree more i mean we're already seeing it now that you know accountants and and people that value teams for a living investment bankers talk about goodwill and sort of that and what is your what is your brand reputation cost and that's a by definition (laughs) a hard thing to say but it was a negative number in washington There's nothing but upside for the Washington football team in terms of the wealth and size of its market, its historical fan base. You know, it's not a I mean, it's not exactly winning that many games, but it's not a total shambles on the football side right now. Um, It's just nobody would dare be seen in a photograph of Dan Snyder. I mean, there were literally mayors in suburban northern Virginia saying, I like this deal for the economics. This is a good deal for us to build a stadium here. I just can't be on the front page of the Washington Post with this man. And that goes away instantly. So while we talk about the timeframes, the Broncos and the Panthers and the Bills and the Browns, it is almost a completely unprecedented situation where day one, the team is worth more just because it's Josh Harris and not Dan Snyder.
0: Yes. The new stadium, obviously we can get to that in a second, but uh, my aunt and uncle uh, were huge Washington fans, Washington football team fans. And, I knew that Snyder was hated. Um, and I knew that he was just universally unpopular and he'd taken a crown jewel franchise and driven it to the ground. And we mentioned like the photo thing. Uh, there was an owners meeting in DC probably a decade ago. And I met my aunt for lunch, uh, sorry, for, for breakfast um, at the Four Seasons of the Ritz or wherever they were. And uh, Dana Snyder was right behind her, right behind her. And like walking in and I was like, Hey, look, the owner of your favorite team is behind behind you. And she was like, I'm not not, I don't want to look at him. And I was like, really? Like he's right there. And she's like, I'm not turning around. And it was just like, I thought she was joking, but it was actually vitriol. And it's like the idea like Snyder had become so toxic that you're right. Nobody in Northern Virginia even wanted to have a meeting with him. Like, that's where it is. So the new stadium process, I guess, starts on day one because people are going to want to have lunch with Josh Harris because he he represents a, a team that was one of the most popular teams in the world, you know, 1998.
1: Right. It goes from having zero bidders to three. The district, Maryland, and Virginia will all be very interested in doing business with them on a new stadium. And that's a hell of a good spot to be in if you want to make money.
0: Does the NFL have a preference, sir?
1: Um. I think the NFL's preference is the best deal for the team. I think they <laughs> yeah. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of nostalgia for the... The most for, public money? Yeah. Yeah, the most seriously, the most public money. I think there's a lot of nostalgia for RFK, but if they can get 1.5 for Maryland and they're only going to get 500 million from the district or the feds, then they'll want it in Maryland. It's pretty bottom line oriented for the other 31.
0: Uh, Yes. And I, I, the other thing about RFK, like the atmosphere, I remember I was listening to Bill Parcells' interview last year and he was talking about RFK in the... Late '80s, and it sounded like it was on a different planet. You know, he was like, "Oh, you know how loud those crowds to get at RFK," and I was like, "Listening to him, I'm like, no, I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about." Like, by the time I started watching that team, they were at FedEx Field, and and nobody wanted to go there, mm-hmm. and it was 45% Packers fans. Um, so that's. It, it'll be interesting to see kind of how how that how that develops. Um, question for you about the price. It felt like maybe I'm just stupid. It felt like there weren't that many serious bidders, and yet the price was extremely high. Is this just the rate? Are there more, were there more bidders or lower price point that, that I don't know about?
1: No, I share your, um, what's the word? I I share your slight confusion, I guess about that. (laughs) Um, Because, well, first of all, this deal has been, very odd in how inconsistent the information has been. I mean, look, it's all lots of background sources and people talking. Sometimes people's of st- reporting and stories don't quite line up. I've never seen a situation where so many reporters who I otherwise trust are directly contradicting each other one way or another along the line here. So it's all a little foggy. And that's mostly because of how few people Dan Snyder really has in his inner circle. Very few people know what he's really thinking at any point. But I think you're right that, you know, Economics Business 101 suggests that Josh Harris is paying 6.05. Theoretically, at least, somebody else was paying 6.04. You know, that's how an auction would work. But that's clearly not. There's been zero reporting to suggest that anybody else was even at six. Um, Apostolopoulos out of uh, Toronto was somewhere in the mid to high fives. And apparently so. And there were was was some
0: questions in- about him.
1: Well, lots of questions about him. And my inside people tell me that that, you know, neither one of those guys was ever particularly serious. It was always Harris's to lose and that he was really bidding against himself. And what this yeah. was, was because of Snyder's position of saying, yeah, okay, maybe I'll sell, but I'll sell under the precise conditions available to me, or, you know, that I want. And he basically wanted a six. So it was, uh, he wanted a round number. He wanted to be darn sure if he was going to be essentially kicked out of the league, that he was going to you know have a nice big headline to celebrate.
0: What kind of owner is Josh Harris? Like I know the process and we've seen him with the Sixers and he just fired Doc Rivers two hours ago, but like, what, what is the rep? What is the NFL expecting? Because one of the things about the NFL is they like a certain type of, of owner. And sometimes they don't get what they're thinking about and they always do the thing. I remember I think it was Jimmy has like met with Robert Kraft to figure out like how to run a franchise. And he was didn't do anything that Robert Kraft did. Like there's a certain profile they wanted an NFL owner. Like what does the NFL think they're getting in Josh Harris?
1: Well, I think, uh, I think they really like that. He's already in the big four world, you know, every sports different obviously, but I think they know that they've got a pretty good sense of how he operates things by, uh, his position with the Sixers and Devils. Um, I know that the, the people that work for him, the high level executives at in Philadelphia and Newark, think very highly of him and say all the right things about, you know, how he runs his team. He's uh invested and engaged in what's going on, but he gives these people the room to work, which is, you know, micromanaging is always the death of any owner. Um the NFL really likes their owners to be very active and thoughtful and contribute to the league business when they can. I think that, you know, they should have very modest expectations for Harris to get too too into league committee work at first, but you know, the league is the, just fine with that because They'll all be very well enriched if he just fixes Washington. And if he has to back out of a couple of finance committee meetings to uh, get things just right on a stadium in Washington, they're happy that that's where his energy is for the next few years.
0: That's a great point. And that's, we've read those stories like five times. The the NFL owners are basically saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 it's Snyder. You took a hugely profitable crown jewel of the NFL and you've driven it into the ground and you're messing with our money now. And so Harris does not have that much of an uphill climb to get that reputation back. Washington wants to believe in that team again. They've, they've gotten into other things and whatever. And they're, they're more into the capitals than they used to be. And the the Nats obviously exist, which wasn't the case when, when uh, Washington, when during the Joe Gibbs era, when they were the biggest thing in the world, but it's, it's not, it's not going to take a whole hell of a lot. Um, I, I guess the, the, the question I have is, is he still going to be, day to day with the Sixers, with the Devils. I mean like I i remember I thought there were first of all, I thought there were some rules about owning other franchises and then the Cronkies own every single franchise on the planet. I guess it's in the those same market. Right? Away,
1: I I forget the exact time frame, but those the Cronky thing? It was it was around then that those rules were changed. I that was before I was on the beat. So I couldn't tell you, we'd have to find some other folks to tell exactly how that went down. But yes, it used to be against the rules to own other pro sports teams. Basically. Even is there an in, expectation
0: even, that he'll, that he'll wean off the Sixers or, or, or is the NFL fine with whatever?
1: You know, I mean, to be totally honest, I haven't asked anyone that question directly, but I think that, um, you know, they're fine with him owning those teams. As long as, you know, he's got high quality people that will step in. I think in those situations, it's going to be particularly important that whoever Josh Harris selects to be the president of the commanders, I mean, maybe that's Jason Wright. I don't know. You assume that a um, a new owner would bring in his own people, but I think Jason probably stands a better chance than most of holding on to that job if he wants it under a Josh Harris era. Um, it just becomes, as an owner's bandwidth is is uh, decreased, it just becomes that much more important that their president is a real top flight political operator, too, in that regard. And, You've seen that around the league elsewhere, where sometimes there's a bit of an ebb and flow over whether it's the owner or the president.
0: Next team for sale.
1: Hmm. Well, I guess the official answer is the Seattle Seahawks, who are are freed from their obligation to give 10% of the proceeds of a sale of the Seahawks to the state of Washington in May of 24. Uh, Conventional wisdom for some time has been that Jody Allen's going to sell that team, or excuse me, the trust of Paul Allen. We'll sell that team as soon as that sort of lockup period with the state ends. Um, but a lot of people I talk to about this say not so fast. Jody enjoys owning this team. And that while it's technically illegal for a trust to own an NFL, not illegal, it's technically against the league rules for a trust to own an NFL team, if it's generally being well run, they're going to give a lot of leeway on it. That's what happened in, um, in in Denver. People thought so highly of Joe mm-hmm. Ellis that there were no particular hurry for the Boland Trust to sell. So it's a mildly hot take to say that actually it's not the Seahawks, um, Arizona. Far be it from me to um, presuppose the conclusion of the Michael Bidwell, Bidwell scandal, but I don't think it's a huge leap to think that could be another person who is quasi forced to sell, depending on what's discovered. Um. Interesting. Houston has been out there. You know Yeah. I mean, look. I don't want to put too much stock in this as hard fact, but you know, the team. Bob McNair was the man, and the team has not yeah. done well under Cal. It's a bit of a shambles there, and maybe he and his mom aren't that interested in owning the team, and maybe the rest of the family just to take the check. See, the size of the checks have changed so quickly that the calculation here changes. I'm sure that I don't think they want to, but I don't think you can all, ever take the bears out of this conversation, given the, the state just... of the thing. Well, because, I mean, Virginia McClaskey is, is a very advanced age. I think the calculations and the interests of that family are a little bit more difficult to discern um, going forward when, after she's gone. And one presumes Kevin Warren was given a lot of pretty ironclad assurances about what the future looks like, before he took that very powerful president and CEO job of the bears leaving the big 10 for it, almost unheard of. But, you know, I just think it's there's not a lot of cash sitting on the books in the McCuskey family. Uh, you know, a lot of generational turnover, no particular reporting to that end, but I think they've got to be on that list.
0: Hmm, interesting. Uh, not Tennessee. It wants to, once you get the new stadium.
1: They've settled some of that, uh, those, those ownership matters within the family. Um, it's all been consolidated under uh, Amy Adams Strunk to a point where I think the heat is off that as a possibility. Chargers? At least in the foreseeable future.
0: Chargers anything? Remember there were lawsuits I think, there?
1: I think not, not, not a lot of hard facts there. I think the Chargers would fit into the same category as the Bears, that you know, it's not a cash-rich team. There is hardly unanimity in the family as far as what the ideal future goes. And that when teams are worth six or seven billion dollars, those family splits can become more pronounced because just cashing out looks more and more pro- uh, promising than it ever used to.
0: That's the funny thing to me. It's like, you know, okay, the George McCaskey, I'm sure he loves running the Bears. But well, you Sí loves $7 billion, which if you wait a couple of right. years, you might be able to get Spanos the same way. Um, I, I just I think that the calculus is changing so much. I think we saw that a little bit in the, the NBA after the Clippers sold for $2 billion or, or the, the Dodgers um, when, when they got their huge. I think that was in maybe $2 billion as well. Um, part of that was the, the TV deal, if you remember. But like once people see the price tag, they go, oh, wait, I didn't realize I actually don't like running this team. I like living in Monaco.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. And I think, and, and you know, I mean, part of me is a little, feels a little bit guilty or reluctant to go too much into these family dynamics because who really knows how two brothers get along with their mother or not. But the point is, here's a good example. When Pat Bolin stepped down from day-to-day control of the Broncos because of his Alzheimer's disease in 2014, the future for his children was splitting, what, one and a half billion seven ways? By the time they actually sold it, those seven children were splitting 4.65 billion seven ways, which is a very different thing. And while they might have said, "Okay, Brittany Bolin, you're the younger sister here. You're going to you're going to put you in charge because, you know, maybe we like owning the team and maybe we like, you know, this appreciating asset. Uh, Seven years later, you mean I can just take 150 grand, 150 million myself and never be heard from again? That's that sounds pretty good.
0: I'm open to that deal. If you're listening, anybody out there, I'm open to 150 million for never to be heard from again. I see baseball contracts like that. Sometimes just guys sent for 150. In the play. <laughs> um All right. Anything on the Snyder stuff that we, we aren't talking about enough uh, to, to close loop on this conversation that, that you, that you would bring up if I hadn't teed you up.
1: Yeah, I guess I would say that um, we have a deal. Everybody wants to get done in front of the league for final approval. And I certainly would not bet against this deal getting done. Motivations are strongly aligned. Nobody wants Dan Snyder there any longer than absolutely necessary. But it is a more complicated deal than the NFL owners are used to putting together. And because it's Dan Snyder, I would give a slightly higher percentage chance of this going sideways than it would with anybody else in this situation. So, not to bum anybody out. But I feel like there is a caveat that needs said here: that the path forward is still a little bit, little bit tricky.
0: All right, he's Ben Fisher. He's the heir apparent to the Chicago Bears. He will be purchasing them after this podcast is over. We'll see you, buddy. Where can we read your work? Plug your stuff.
1: I'm at sportsbusinessjournal.com and on Twitter is probably the best way at Ben Fisher SBJ. Right. Or if you see me walking around in Boreham Hill in Brooklyn, you can say hi and ask me. I moved out of Boreham Hill. I'm out. I was going to say I hadn't seen you around in a while, but, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was in the mix there for a while, but now I'm out. I got a kid. It was loud. We had to get out of it. it Yeah. Didn't like my neighbors. My neighbors ended up, we had a shared courtyard and two of our neighbors, someone sent this to my wife a couple months ago, two of them showed up. On like a famous TikTok tour your apartments thing where people knock on doors and their entire apartment was uh, filled with crystals. So we we were living next to to two roommates who were just you know were crystal apartment people. So we didn't know that the whole time.
1: It is Brooklyn. I mean, you're not far from the uh, Dogs Only Bakery, too. So, you know, you take you take the the uh, Dogs Only Bakery. bakery. We're (laughs) also
0: not we're not far from the Brooklyn Nets, of which there is no evidence that we lived four blocks from a uh, from a National Basketball Association team.
1: No, it's it's that's a weird vibe around there. Right. Like, you know, they're playing, but like it's unless you're taking the
0: My story about that is when I first moved there, um, I had to go, I was buying stuff and I was like, I need a new iPad. And so I went to go buy an iPad at that target at Atlanta terminal and I get back and it's like the second quarter of a Nets playoff game. And I was like, wait a second. I was across the street from like a pretty big, I think it was the Nets Celtics series. I was like, I was across the street from a, a, a playoff game in the NBA and I just didn't see any evidence of it. So that's it. That's, that's living in Brooklyn. Hey, then
1: that Kevin reminds Durant. Me. Oh, yeah, this is Kevin Durant. All these weird people in Brooklyn. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Irving. Irving, it's it's a weird place to live, but I enjoy it. But that reminds me, actually, relevant. Uh, we've we checked the box off a nationally distributed podcast talking about New York neighborhood stuff, so that's good. But relevant to the Snyder thing, you talk about his uh, his personal goodwill. Um, did you see what the Bowie Bay Sox are doing, the minor league team? I did I've not. Um, I think it's like next Friday. It's a change in ownership celebration night. Anyone named Josh or Harris gets in free The movie baseball. Hand of God. I love My that. I best love that. Got his friend in Bethesda named Josh. He's like, We're gonna go. It's gonna be great. So that's what smartest, Josh Harris is with.
0: The smartest minds in America are in minor league marketing. Yep.
1: Yeah, completely true. Completely ben true. Ben Fisher. Anyway,
0: I'll see you, buddy. Thanks for coming on Sony's Day.
1: Thanks, Gavin.